Hello, hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Putting It Together. It's Brian O'Sullivan here, and I'm re-releasing uh, my interview with Marilyn Emery, who sadly died just a couple of days ago. Um, a great pal of mine, a great supporter of mine, and um, I wanted to share a few memories of Marilyn and share the interview again with you. Um, it's out there anyway, but I just wanted to you know, bring it to the front again and let people hear our beautiful voice and the chat that we had. Um, and just in this wee intro, I hope you'll forgive me for working from notes, just because I want to get it right what I want to say. Um, we did the interview in Marilyn's house and, uh, I mean, an amazing for anyone who's been there, an amazing house right near the Playhouse in Edinburgh. And uh, one of the first things she told me about it was that the floorboards were actually the old floorboards of the stage of the Playhouse Theatre. By some strange coincidence, as they were ripping out an old stage from the Playhouse some years ago, um, some architect who was designing this flat um, grabbed them from a skip or bought them, I can't remember the exact story, um, and they ended up in this house, and when Marilyn went to view the house, they said, these are actually floorboards from a stage, you might want to get rid of them. She said, no, 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 we have to keep them, and they bought the house right away. She would say, you know, come come over, darling, and um, I'll put, I'll, we'll have a, a little bite to eat. And, you know, she would always underplay it. Come over and if we want to read through a script or have a chat about something. I'll put out some just bits and bobs on the table. And you would go and the table would be creaking under the weight of just all this fancy food and coffee and orange juice and cold meats and different cheeses and cakes. And it was endless. And we'd sit for hours, you know. Um... We first worked together a few, well, a number of years ago, maybe yeah, six or seven years ago. Um, I did a rehearsed reading with her where we rehearsed just in the day and um, the show went on at night at the Tron with Claire Waugh, and Pauline Lockhart and Harry Ward. It was a show called Elsie and Mary Go to War and um, I brought. I had to bring Millie to the reading, which we we did, at, or the rehearsal, sorry, which we did at Claire's flat, I think, and uh I didn't have anyone to watch Millie, so I brought her, and Marilyn just fell in love with Millie, and she would ask me all the time, how is that darling dog of yours? So latterly, I was just sending Marilyn pictures of Millie, um, just to make her smile, you know? So after that, she asked me to be in a, a new show she was developing called Keep Right On to the End of the Road, which was about Harry Lauder and his son, who died in action in the First World War and uh, Harry Lauder was to be played by John Sessions and we had some laugh just putting this together and I mean it was a it was a really it was a reading initially so I think we had one day of rehearsal at one point um, with John and then we ended up touring it to book festivals all over Scotland um, and at some point Dave Anderson t- took over and, and played Lauder as well um, we also went to the St Magnus Festival in Orkney, which was an amazing experience. And it's the type of gig that I would never have got or never have done if it hadn't been for Marilyn. She had these sort of um, a strange collection of connections. Suddenly you'd be, you'd be in some posh house somewhere, you know, hobnobbing with somebody. I mean, like I remember I ended up with I ended up with Jim Nocte's iPad or, or laptop in my car after one of these book festivals. She's chatting away and she says, do you know Jim? And he was on the Today programme the next morning and I said, I know this guy, I listen to him all the time. And then somehow I, he, he left his bag in my car or something. We drove, someone took it on a train to him. I don't know. These were the kind of connections you would make if you hung out with Marilyn. You'd be at the St Magnus Festival at the, at the summer solstice or you'd be hanging out with Jim Nocte or some strange you know, connections that, that you would end up with. Um, as a director, I don't, I don't ever remember Marilyn saying no. She would say, "Well, yes, I think that's wonderful." And regardless of whether that was true, I don't know. 
but it would open the door for you to try things, you know, to not be afraid of being shut down. Um, and then slowly and gradually over time, the, the whole picture of the show would start to emerge and Marilyn's vision would, would come into focus. And then th- at that point, you'd realise that she'd been gently guiding you the whole time, you know. We worked together on Linda McLean's adaptation of Alice Munro's The View from Castle Rock, which you probably hear me talk about a few times on the show, and we just had a ball. We had a sold-out run at the Edinburgh Book Festival where we discovered the joys of the writer's yurt, if you know, you know, um, and then a small tour of the borders where we got the opportunity to actually perform in the tiny village hall of the very village where these real characters had been from. The real people, uh, Alice Munro's... um, ancestors who she was writing about had been from Ettrick Ettrick Bridge I think and we went there and performed in this tiny hall it was amazing and you know after that I don't think we officially ever worked together again um we'd meet up occasionally and Marilyn would always come and support whatever I was doing and then she would take me to lunch or dinner and she would gush about how wonderful I was even if she agreed with my criticisms of the play she was not going to be swayed from the observation that I had done a terrific job (laughs) she was very clear on that um and the last time I saw her was at one of these lunches between shows of the Lyceum Christmas show, just Christmas Just Gone, where she informed me that at Christmas time, it's best to go somewhere posh because you've more chance of getting somewhere quiet to have a nice chat. And so it was that we ate smoked salmon in a hotel restaurant and we put the world to rights as usual, as we always did. And uh, she had wanted to support this podcast, so she enlisted me to help her figure out how to do that on her phone. Um... And I got back to the dressing room for the evening show and I found a, an email on my phone of a, of a very generous donation that she'd made. And that was Marilyn. Generous, supportive, loving, gentle and kind. And here's my chat with her. We are putting it together. If blue plaques are going one day, <laughs> 200 years from now, if we're all still standing, I think there might be a blue plaque because the people who've rehearsed here and the shows we've rehearsed here and the people who've talked about the work here it's extraordinary yeah. well it's been at least at least a, a number of occasions anyway that i've been here doing yes. different things absolutely and uh, quite a few shows uh or more shows uh festival shows yep. uh people have been interviewed about the work liz lockhead has has spoken here has performed here has she yes and gerda stevenson oh, and yeah. her father performed here so it's it's quite a little uh, new town enclave of the arts. It's a wee salon. <laughs> it's a wee and salon. Then there's the floor in the hall, which you need to r- remind well, me of the story Well, I'll tell you the of, story yeah, of the me. floor in the hall. When we were buying this flat, um, uh, we said to the, 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 the lady who was selling it uh, that we loved the natural wood floors in the hall and in the other room through, through uh, off the hall. And she said, well, her partner had been an architect and they'd been commissioned to refurbish the Playhouse Theatre. Um, And when they did so, I mean, it had been built in the early 20th century uh, and they took the whole staging out and put in new staging. And she said, what are you doing with this beautiful wood staging, this fine narrow board staging? They said, oh, it'll just be chucked out. And she was renovating this flat, this architect, and she thought this would be perfect for my hall. And she said to the guy who had worked at, at the Playhouse for years, I mean, has this been in since the very beginning? And he said, oh, yes, it was put down. It was This was the stage flooring put down when the theatre was built. Uh, and, you know, Harry Lauder has performed on here. And also Rudolf Nureyev danced on this floor. No. 
and we and I remember seeing him dance uh, at the Edinburgh Festival in the 1980s before they did the refurbishment. So our floor in our hall has been danced on by Nureyev and Harry Lauder has trod the boards as That's well. That's amazing. So, yeah, it's great, isn't it? Like, do you know, I think you told us it not because of the story, but because we had walked in and someone said, oh, that's a lovely floor. So you remark on it first. Exactly. I mean, when I when we looked to buy this flat, I thought, oh, that's a lovely floor. And the floorboards were unusually narrow, right. which, of course, stage flooring is. So uh, it, it is definitely, that is a true story. And there's something very special about it. And, of course, we're just round the corner from the Playhouse Theatre. Yeah. So it, it's it, there we are. So a little bit of the Playhouse Theatre is in the, in the house. I was just walking by the Playhouse and I... I don't know, it, it's probably a bad habit, but when I walk by these big theatres now, I look at what's on, and I usually roll my eyes. I feel bad, but, you know, when I look at the list of things, and I'm looking for something that would interest me, mm-hmm. and I, I, know. I think as the years go on, less and less does. I don't know if that's about me or programming. Or no, I think it's about the Playhouse programming, and I'm not going to diss the play, Playhouse programming because I go and I see things there. But the problem is that it's very telly-oriented, you know, so Mm. Strictly Come Dancing will come to the Playhouse in Edinburgh. Um, The kind of musical, the kind of number one tour of theatre that isn't quite comfortable um, somewhere like the Lyceum or the King's comes to to the Playhouse. Um, But on the other hand, some wonderfully joyous events and um, big theatrical moments have come there. Uh, and people who don't go to the theatre that often come and make a night out at the Playhouse. So, if anything, the Playhouse Theatre is the people of Edinburgh's theatre, I would yeah. say. They feel most at home in it, and they probably always did, which is why, you know, Harry Lauder would play there. It's very much their theatre. And I was very amused to, to hear, to read the other day, I was um, in a restaurant just across from the Playhouse, and it says, the foremost restaurant in Edinburgh's theatre district. <laughs> I thought, oh, hello. I didn't know that this was the theatre district. You would have thought that maybe the Usher Hall and the Lyceum and, and the Traverse would constitute the theatre district. Well, yeah. But actually, apparently, this is the theatre district. Because the Playhouse, is, I would say, is the people's theatre, you know. And I suppose we shouldn't... Uh we shouldn't be judgmental then because if, if something no. gets people to go... Exactly, N- not at all. And and when you pass it, um, there are crowds of people yeah. coming to see Elvis tribute shows. And yeah. the point is, they're coming to see live theatre. So let's, you know, let's rejoice Celebrate in that. Celebrate that, absolutely. And yeah. then as, I suppose as you say about Harry Lauder, we look back with a sort of nostalgic view um, mm. and perhaps elevate these things to exactly. high culture now exactly. you know, yes, through the rose tinted glasses and, yeah. and wonderful but in the in its day it was it was populist entertainment oh, absolutely Same as Shakespeare he was, was hugely popular yeah. uh, uh, man and and people flocked to him and and building the playhouse here then in the top of Leith Walk in an area that was growing you know huge amounts of tenement building was happening with mm. affordable housing for people who were working in Leith in the docks and in this whole area this very big working area of Edinburgh and that theatre was right in the middle of their community so yeah. you know it, it is if anything it's a community theatre and it has a community choir it has a great sense of being a theatre that belongs to this area, rather than up there in the in the heights of you know where the Usher yeah, Hall yeah. and and the Traverse and the Lyceum is. It has a different quality about it. You know? That's so interesting. And I think when I was younger, I went to see 
more of those those number one tours yes. because when you're you're maybe wowed by colour yeah, and noise yes, and yes, and then yes. you've developed taste that you, you know different taste not exactly, better or worse but exactly. it's funny to think and and then the pavilion in Glasgow yes is where most people go in terms of exactly. you know in terms of audience numbers. I it's would packed. say that the pavilion and the playhouse they are they are similar, you right. know, in the uh-huh. in their audiences. You know, when Bewitched came up, the touring production of Bewitched, it came to the playhouse. Bewitched. And it packed the playhouse. You mean like Bewitched? As in the the nineteen fifties T V show. No, no. The, no, not Bewitched. Do I mean Wicked, Bewitched? you're talking Wicked, about. Wicked, you're talking about Wicked. <laughs> Bewitched. No, but, well, Bewitched, yes. Wicked. Wicked Packed, d- yeah. Packed out packed out for I think two or three weeks. Um and it's a very big theatre, and it it was packed out. So it's that kind of touring, you know, that happens. So Wicked was a great, and I went to see it, and I was amazed by the number of people that were there that you wouldn't see at the Lyceum, you wouldn't yeah. see at the Traverse, but they were they were packing them out. But you do wonder. I mean, I've been wondering a lot recently working at the Lyceum. Who and what is it for? That, well, you know, and a good question. these big questions keep popping and I can't get shot of them. I know, I know. I mean, for me, it is about people leaving their houses and going out together and having a good night out with live performance mm. in a darkened room. You know, that's what's magical about theatre is that you get together with loads of people and you sit in the dark and you watch something and you talk to them. I mean, when I came to see Twelfth Night at the Lyceum, I went on my own, as I'm very happy to do at the theatre, but I sat beside a group of people whom I didn't know, who were the same age as me, and I had a really interesting conversation with them about you do, what don't they you? Yes. It's better if you go on your own because then they talk to you. You know, if, That's true. if you go in a group or with your own partner, then people don't tend to talk to you in the same way, you know. But I spend the time, if I go with someone, and the same applies to cinema or anything else, wondering. If they're okay, do they like it? I know. Are they uncomfortable? Is it too long for them? I yes. take responsibility. I know. Whereas if you go on your own, you can get lost in it and yeah. enchanted by it. And hey, if you don't like it, you can also leave, you know. That's true. And don't feel guilty because the other person wants to stay. But mainly, I find going on my own, I actually I kind of absorb what's going on around me more mm. and what other people are thinking more. Uh, so it's great. I did it once. Um, I was up at Dundee Rep for some... Something I was rehearsing and there was another show mm. on and because it wasn't packed and I was getting a wee comp or whatever, I sat right at the back and I was in a row without anyone else and I was able to sort of stretch out and I felt like a little bit more detached I from know. what was going on yes. in a good way and yes. I was able to just let it um, float over me and sometimes yes. when you're right close to people and you've got people on either side, you feel... Um, you're almost performing the role of audience. Yes, and you yes, have to, exactly. You've got all exactly. this etiquette is on top of you. And when you take some of that pressure off, it gave me a different watching experience. Because I realised that one of the reasons why I like going to the theatre on my own is as a director, you very often go to see the show once it's opened Mm. and you don't go with people because you don't want to sit beside people who are giving you an opinion. You go to see how the show is doing and you sit at the back or at the side on your own because that way you can watch yeah. people you can watch the audience and whether if they're getting the stuff that you want them to get yeah. and also watch watch how the show's doing and i actually like that aspect as a director once the show's up i actually like going back to it and just sitting there as a punter and you know and i think the people around me don't know i've anything to do with this show and so the, again if you're on the run they'll say oh are you enjoying this you know and i'll say well quite like it I don't, you <laughs> yeah. know they don't know who I am so they give me their opinion I, I love doing that I love doing that someone 
Emma, who was doing the movement on Twelfth Night, said to me that during the previews, what she did was go straight to the ladies' toilet oh, and get and get yes. in a cubicle and then sit and listen. And, <laughs> and then you get this wee you do the chatter. People, and people also pick up, I don't know why he's doing that. I've, or is he not the one that's off, you know, River City <laughs> or whatever? Yeah. And, and, and that's interesting too. People make connections with actors that they've seen in something else. I mean, oh, yeah. people, are, people are more aware of how things are cast and what people are doing than you think they'll be. You know, they're more informed about what someone has done before. And yeah. they're very full of opinions about whether a play works or not, even if it's by Shakespeare, they still oh, have yeah. an opinion of whether it's a rubbish yeah. plot, you know. They're yeah, not, that's uh, you it. Know. Well, the, in a sense, people who are less invested in the actual business of it yes. can just say, oh, well, I didn't think that bit was very good. I know. I my you know. my favourite, uh, and it's a long time ago now, because, of course, the play Loot, Joe Orton's play Loot, is not as shocking now yeah. as it might have been 30 or 40 years ago when it was first done at the Lyceum. And I was there uh, um, at its its opening um, and there were two Morningside ladies coming out um, in front of me when I left the theatre. And I mean, loot is, you know, a dead body is carted around the stage and mm. loses its false teeth. Uh, and that is, it was much more shocking then than now. We're so used to all these things happening, yeah. but it was quite shocking. And certainly if you were an elderly lady, <laughs> seeing an elderly lady's body carting around the stage was, was a bit shocking. Sure. But anyway, it's also a brilliant play, a really funny, fabulous play. And it was a good production. Um, however, I was coming out behind these two ladies and one of them said to the other well Murag it was an experience <laughs> and the other one said yes one we could have well done without <laughs> <laughs> and every time I see loot I think now about those two one we could have well, done, well without. done without oh don't mention your words I love I it. Know, it was funny. so when did you start directing because you, you you call yourself a director although your your skills are well, Very varied. Well, I, I call myself a director because I think ever since I started uh, working in the theatre, I mean, I started performing as a singer. Yeah. In the folk song of revival of the late 60s, um, my sister and I formed a group and prosaically called ourselves the Emory Sisters. Why right. not? That was our name. And it's not uh, Celia. And it's I not Celia. Sure no that. relation to Celia. Okay. How I wish I was. <laughs> She's a dear woman and lover. She's brilliant. Um, but we're not related as far as we know. We right. always say that. <laughs> um, but my sister and I, Susan, um, uh, we sang at school. We loved singing. Um, and we, we joined a, a Kirkcaldy Folk Club at the Elbow Room. And we became a duo. And we sang with people like Archie Fisher, Barbara mm -hmm. Dixon, uh, Hamish Imlach. Oh. Uh, we, we knew them all and we Amazing. sang with them all. And we performed on telly. We performed on radio. So I was a performer when I was still at school. I did all the folk song circuits all over Scotland, you know. So I, I kind of knew what it was like to turn up in in wick you know and sing in a in a crowded bar with people all smoking furiously wow. and buying you drinks they all wanted to buy you a drink you know well of course they did but you know if you had taken them up on that it would have been a hopeless road to ruin luckily i didn't take it <laughs> <Road to> but, <laughs> but but we we learned so i mean we heard Jeannie fisher sing um uh, we we met ewan mccall and peggy seeger yeah. and sang with them uh so performance and music particularly was absolutely in my blood and I did that for 
about four years, then I went to university. I kept singing, but I then started to act. But I thought, you know, I'm not a, I'm a rubbish actor. I, I can sing okay, but I'm a rubbish actor. So many directors <laughs> say that. And, oh, terrible. I mean, you know, <laughs> really bad. <laughs> but, I'm, you know, I mean, I know when people are bad and I'm bad. Um, anyway, um, but I began to direct shows at college and at university. Right. And that was where I, I realised that that was my... my passion for using music in shows which I still have was 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 given free reign um and I I love directing so then uh because I had trained as a teacher I started to teach and I taught drama and of course that my directing skills were part of that then I was invited to write scripts for telly and radio in Glasgow and I did that and then uh, they asked me to apply for a job as a director of of radio drama uh, and I got the job and I worked in that for quite a long time and that's when I really kind of the ground work of learning how to look at a script see where it's working where it's not mm. uh, understand the dynamics of good storytelling in a script where you know that's where I learned my craft and I also learned because quite quickly in radio directing you have to you have to see what the performance requires what the actor is giving you and what they could do to change that performance and you have to pinpoint it quite quickly because you don't have three weeks yeah. um, but then I went back to theatre directing. I did a bit of tele directing as well. And then I went back to theatre directing when my children were a wee bit older because it is still, and it was then, hard to direct in the theatre when you have small children. Mm. It's not easy. Uh, and the wonderful directors, you know, who we have in Scotland and uh, everywhere now who have small children would tell you that. Uh, it's hard now. It was even harder then. Well, because now we're, it's starting to be recognised no, as, as a need. And as a need, and people are making concessions for it. Yeah. People are helping you with childcare. There is more available childcare. It's still tough, oh, gosh, but yeah. it was really tough then. So I found I couldn't do it. But once my children were up and grown up, I could return to the theatre. And although I still love audio directing, I love working with voice only. So you pinpoint what an actor can bring just with their voice Mm. uh, to a piece of storytelling and a piece of characterization. I love doing that. So I've done quite a lot of animation direction, which I love. I did a series with Lenny Henry and I learned so much from him about how you can just create a little mouse's voice or a large elephant's voice just Mm -hmm. with particular change of emphasis and tone Mm -hmm. and even working on the mic. So I I love doing that. But what I do love is the luxury for me of having a rehearsal period and being able to develop the script and develop the characterisation with the actors. So that's this kind of story of where I got to. But music for me, if a show doesn't have music, I'm not so interested because... Uh, I love marrying music to storytelling, and it's always my favourite thing. Mm. There's and, well, there's yeah. such a strong uh, strain of music through all the work of yours that I've ever known. Yes, I, 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 do, I always think, oh, I want to do this because musically we can tell a story in it. You know, we've just, I've just finished directing tap dancing with Jean-Paul Sartre, mm-hmm. and that was a first for me directing dance in a show. I had the 
absolutely brilliant Darren Brownlee, who was the choreographer. And yep. God, he's a genius, that man. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, I couldn't have done it without him. And he also played Fred Astaire wonderfully. But equally, I could see what dance could do. And I really loved working with him on that show. And of course, the music and song in it was just fabulous. Uh, Sophie Tucker's song, One of These Days, which must be one of the great blues numbers. Mm. And we did this beautiful performance of it with Ashley Smith singing it. Gorgeous. And for me, that's just a delight. Total yeah. delight. Yeah. And that's an example of, not for the first time, you working with your husband, who was the writer. Yes, yes. I mean, James has always been a writer. When I first knew him, he'd, he'd already uh, been a writer at university and he'd brought a, a play to the fringe called Nightmares in the Day, which I keep wanting him to show me. And he swears he will never let me see this play. you never seen it? No, he's got the script somewhere, <laughs> but he will not let me see it because he says it is so embarrassingly terrible that he will never show it to me. Uh, and that makes me want to read it all the more. I'm desperate to read it. Uh, I know, me too. And maybe it should be revived. But anyway, he'd, he'd always been writing. Um, and then when we got together, he started uh, working on novels and he's become a very successful novelist. And his novels have been turned into teleseries, Grantchester. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's always loved the theatre, as I do, and playwriting. Um, and when he'd written a few Grantchester stories, which are about a, a vicar who solves murder mysteries, I said to him with the absolutely wonderful David McLennan, who who knew uh, James and I well, uh, he read the book. He said, I love this Grantchester story. Why don't you write a stage play of a murder mystery set in a jazz club? And you could do it at Oran Moore. Right. So that's what we did and that was a, a great success uh, and after that uh, another a passion of James's is the story of, of Johnson, Dr Johnson, the yeah. dictionary maker so we did two plays about him uh, and now tap dancing with Jean-Paul Sartre so I love working with him but you know script conferences are quite tense <laughs> uh, because I'm used to writers saying I mean arguing with me but not really going into total grump you know yeah. whereas um when you when you work on something with your partner uh the stakes are higher and th- there's no holds barred you know writers think oh, well i can't really shout at marilyn and i think oh i can't really shout at this writer but when you're right the writer's <laughs> your partner the the all all the deals are often you know no holds barred so it's it's quite tense sometimes so th- the question is is there ever any discussion about maybe you should direct this one from James. Is it just a foregone conclusion or how does that work? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I had this lovely conversation with uh, Ashley Smith when I was directing a play about the painter Joan Eardley and she played Joan Eardley's lover, the young Fife uh, painter Lil Nielsen. And I said to her as we were working on it, I said, you know, it would be wonderful for you to play Audrey Hepburn because you have that quality about you. It's not Mm. just a look-alike thing. Ashley has a kind of quality of Audrey Hepburn in her acting. Mm. And she said, oh, God, that would be wonderful. And I said, we'll just have to think of a play, you know. So I started to look again at, I mean, I adore Audrey Hepburn's work, and I started to look again at all her films. Uh, And the one that struck me as being really interesting was Funny Face, where Mm -hmm. uh, she plays a young philosophy student who is discovered in her bookshop by a fashion photographer who persuades her to come to Paris with him for a fashion shoot. 
But all she's really interested in is meeting the French philosophers. It's 1956. The left bank's alive with beatniks and hot jazz and philosophers. Um, And so she she agrees to go to Paris. Um, So I thought that would be the basis for a story. Uh, And Morag and April at Oran Moore were really interested in it too and very supportive. Um, And they said, well, why don't you construct a play around what happened when they went to Paris Mm. rather than doing a version of Funny Face because that's very expensive you've got to clear all the rights and also you know it's it's not as good as an original play Mm. so I went home and I was sitting uh, worrying about it thinking how can I do this what I do and so as you do with your partner I I talked to James about it and he is a huge fan of, of Ashley's work as well and I said, I need a play about them in Paris and what would happen? Would she fall in love with Fred Astaire or what would happen there when they were making this film? And he said, well, maybe they would actually meet the famous philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, but, you know, that's... Not, I mean, he was a philosopher. They were dancers. What would they do? And he said, well, maybe they'd teach him to tap dance. So tap dancing with Jean-Paul Sartre. And I said, yeah, but who's going to write it? <laughs> and he said, well, I could write it. <laughs> and, and that's how it happened. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't always happen that way. And and I would like James to be directed by somebody else. Uh, they can put up with all the grumpiness. and, the, and the, They probably get less of it. They probably get less of it, of you course. You might still get it. Exactly. I think I might still get it. Yeah. But anyway, with this play, that's how it happened. And Ashley was delighted. Uh, and she just played an absolute blinder as Audrey. Mm. Um, and I think it's made us all feel that we would like to take it further. You know, she's, she's just, I mean, she danced divinely. She sang divinely. She looked like Audrey. And most importantly, she sort of embodied the quality of Audrey Hepburn, which is, is del- terrific. It's that thing, isn't it, of not doing an impersonation. Um, but trying to, as you say, embody a quality. Exactly, exactly. We weren't doing Audrey lookalike time. Yeah, yeah. It was the quality of wonderful youthful enthusiasm which Audrey Hepburn has had in all her films and of a sense of comedy and absurdity. She, You could see that she liked teasing people because everybody wanted to know her. Everybody fell in love with her. Um, and so her response was to tease people. Mm. And, and you know, I think Ashley captured that qu- teasing quality of a young girl who loves life and finds it quite funny. Um, and, and I think James captured that in the writing, but importantly, Ashley captured it in her performance. Uh, well, I then was, it's a team effort, isn't it? Exactly. It's about and the right and team. It, was, it was a joy to work with her, but of course with Darren as well, and with the wonderful Kevin Lennon uh, as Jean-Paul Sartre, yes. who was astonishing and glorious. Yeah. So we had, a, and, and you know, Stuart, who played the keys on it, was also fabulous. It was just one of these happy times when everyone in the ensemble comes together to just do something rather wonderful. That's and great. Joyful. What's interesting is for me, most of my experiences in theatre are that. I don't know whether yes. I've been really lucky, and it's not all of them, no. but I, I tend to think the vast majority of them are times when good people come together to do good stuff and people enjoy it. Yes. My heart sinks in, in the first or the first week, but certainly the first few days of rehearsals when anyone says, now, this is how I'm going to do it. You know, this is how it's going to be, uh, including the director. I don't say this is how it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. I think what ha- what works best is when everyone comes together 
and they have ideas. There's a playfulness in the room. Um, there's some absurd ideas, and you spend a day, and you, at the end of it, you think, you know, this is rubbish. Well, you could do it, yeah, a know. whole day yes. of, of messing about. Um, I know exactly. We have done um, it, as, as we do, and, and I think that one of the keys, as both a director and as an actor, is not to be afraid of losing face, and and it does happen, and I wish it didn't, and I try to not make it happen for the people I'm working with and for myself. Mm. Uh, if I take people down a road. And we try to make it work and we really look at every way of making it work and it doesn't work. Both the actors and I have to put up our hands and say, it's not working. Don't let's flog this dead horse. Let's, we, we've had fun. We've learned something. Maybe one bit of what we did we can mm-hmm. use. But let, you know, and when you see a production where somebody, and it can have been the actor, it can even have been the designer or the musical director or the director or all of them who have hung on to a daft idea and flogged it to death just because nobody said, do you not think this is rubbish? You yeah, know? yeah, get lost. Get it can either it. be everybody, including the writer, or one of the members of the creative team who's just keeps flogging it and everyone goes, oh, well, I suppose, you know. And, and you can see it, can't you? And you know when you're in that scene, you think, why are we still doing oh, this? Especially when you're in it. Yeah, you have to you keep know, repeating it. Agony, agony. Yeah. And I think the job of the director is to be, if nobody else will, if, if everyone else is still loving it, that's when you've got to go, do you know what? Guys, I know that we all love this, or you love it, but it isn't working, or it's mm. not doing. It's not earning its keep in the show. Let's take it out, or let's look at a different way of doing it because it just doesn't work. And I think that's, for me, that's when you're most unpopular as a director sometimes, um, and when it's toughest. But that's what you have to. It to seems do. like you have to be prepared to be unpopular at times if yes. you're going to be a good director. I find that hard, to be honest, and I think every director does. Yeah. Uh, because we're only human, just as all actors and musicians and writers are only human. Um, and I think, I think the way I find round it is that I don't want to be the person who says, right, I don't care what the rest of you think we're not doing this or we're changing that. Mm-hmm. I want to get to a place in the rehearsal process where everyone thinks that's the right answer. Not, not be- and they're not just saying that to make me feel happy. They yeah. actually have come through trying it out to realise that this isn't the right thing. And that, that way you've sort of done your job. And so that's when being a director is about diplomacy and negotiation, you know. Yeah, and you... More than anybody I've ever worked with, adopt what I'll call a softly, softly approach. Mm. Um, And I mean that in only the best way um, that I've not seen much elsewhere, which is kind of in the kettle's on. There's a wee bit of a chat. How is everybody? Mm -hmm. And we gently feel our way through Mm -hmm. this process. Mm -hmm. And like it works really well for me because I don't respond well at all to any kind of confrontation. So no. what, is that is that just about your personality or is it as, as a really specific choice that you've well, made? Well, do you know, I am actually quite confrontational, as my family will tell you, in some areas. But I don't like bullying. I hate bullying. And who, who, do, who does mm. love it? Mm-hmm. Apart from people who bully people and even they are unhappy about it. They're doing it because of some mm. terrible lack in the rest of their lives. But they, they know how to do it. I don't like seeing that happen in a company. I don't like it if the director does it, but I don't like 
when I see one actor or, I mean, it can be a, a stage manager. It can be any member of the team. Anyone can suddenly you think, oh, we've got a class bully here. Mm. And they are exerting an influence on some, not perhaps all the company, but it's malign and it spreads, you know. So I don't like bullying. <clears throat> and so my, I don't have a technique, but I think that you have to um, make sure that the quietest person in the process has a chance to see. You have to watch that you don't allow the loud voices. And often they're very lovable. I mean, it's not necessarily that the bully is a horrible big bruiser. Often they're actually an enormously lovable mm -hmm. and charismatic person. So they're not bullying through being, you know, forth and horridness. They're actually the form of bullying is, we're all wonderful and this is what we're going to do. It's going to be great. But you think, <laughs> no, not everybody's carried along by this. Mm. I can see in the room that there's an actor who's going along with it because they feel they should but actually feeling unhappy and I think the director's job is to make sure that doesn't happen because it will end up being a disaster if it does it will and and also the person who is shouting loudest and being charismatic and big is the person who will carry the day but their vision isn't necessarily right just because it's louder doesn't just mean because it's, right. it's louder you know yeah. and and I've I have been in that situation and I, and I won't I don't really I think it's it's not a, it's not proper creativity. It's somebody winning. You know, it's it's about I'm the winner in this production. Yeah, that's that's not. What I'm the I'm the, I'm the I'm the leader. I'm the winner, yeah. and I, I don't think that's what it's about. You know, I, the director shouldn't be, and not there shouldn't be one company member who is. But you know, I think we've all encountered it. Mm. Well, but know. it's not until only a few years ago when I started reading about the difference between introverts and extroverts that I realised mm. that that was a. A, it was a scale, but mm -hmm. also that it wasn't, um, one wasn't better than the other. Exactly. Because you you could easily believe in the world that we live in, especially in the arts, yes. that to be louder and bigger and brasher is better. Yes. You sell yourself and you get the jobs and all the rest of it. Exactly. But, but no, it, it really isn't. Um, and also you have to remember that that loud, brash person who feels they're leading the field and that they're taking the leading role and they're doing it. And it can sometimes be the writer and it can sometimes be, as I say, the, the MD or mm -hmm. one of the, 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 the crew who are just saying, no, you know, the lighting designers, they know it's got to be this way. And you've, you, that's when you have to start holding the ship steady as the director and not allowing one person to swing it in one direction. But mm -hmm. that's when it gets quite tough. But, but at the end of the day, the actors know when you're doing that and they do, by and large, appreciate it. They do, they do, because they feel. I mean, that's what you were saying earlier. You, you've all got to feel that you're not in a leaky boat. You've all got to feel in a safe boat, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's that's. I think that the director's job, you know. It is. Yeah. When your name comes up in conversation, as it often does, that's there are people. Nice. <laughs> well, I've not told you what they say yet. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Maybe there are that's people so in nice. my life who refer to you as Marilyn Ireland. Yes, indeed, people now, still do. They do, and and. Kenny Island was before my time really mm. being in this business. Mm. So, so, but it's a name that certainly looms large. Tell me a little bit about Kenny. Well, I love talking about Kenny Ireland. Um, I met him when I was doing one of my famously bad acting performances, actually. <laughs> um, when I was doing my teacher training year at Jordan Hill, I was in a play called Children in Uniform playing a school teacher. Um, 
Uh, I think I was very bad. But at the end of it, um, my friend Bill Patterson, who was also at Jordan Hill that year doing a teaching year, having finished at the, uh, the what was then the, the Academy, the Athenaeum, um, uh, he came to see it and he brought his pal Kenny Ireland. And afterwards we all went to the pub and Kenny Ireland said, I just thought you were wonderful in that play. I thought, well, that's very amazing, because even then he was a director. He was directing the the Theatre for Youth arm of the Citizens, and mm-hmm. he was even then really regarded as a very exciting young director with a great eye and great vision. And so I was very, very flattered by this, you know. Then we all started going out and having fun together as a group, uh, and then I started having a relationship with him. I married him, uh, and we were together for about seven years. Um, it was stormy because he was a very stormy person mm-hmm. and we were both very young and he was running the Young Lyceum Theatre Company at the time. I was teaching in Edinburgh and beginning to write a bit and, and to work in in, in radio. Um, but what was terrific about being with Kenny and which I've always been grateful to him for, he he had a vision he powered it through. He could be a bully, and that's why I really understood how bullies work mm. and why they feel they need to be that way. But he was a wonderful director and had great vision, and I think he's possibly, in the theatre, one of the people who has influenced me most. Musically, Archie Fisher influenced me. His style of singing, his love of traditional music, his love of storytelling and song influenced me. And as a director, I think Kenny Ireland uh, influenced me. And I was very proud to be called Marilyn Ireland for a period of my uh, life um, and very proud to be Marilyn Imry now. But I learned a lot from Kenny. I hugely respected him and I loved him till the day he died. We, you know, we were friends apart, as, Dave, uh, as, as Charles Dickens says. Right. Um, we were in great expectations. We were, we were good friends all our lives. And I think he was a brilliant man. And did you work together? Uh, no, I never worked with him right. apart from once towards the end of his life. And it was very special for all of us. Uh, Bill Patterson had written a play called Astonishing Archie for Oran Moore about two brothers who have an argument about how their best friend would like his funeral conducted. One of them thinks that Elvis Presley should be the music played. The other thinks Frank Sinatra should be the music played. Mm-hmm. And they have a row about it. It's a lovely idea. And uh, Bill was playing one of the brothers. And Kenny, who'd been a lifelong friend of his, played the other. And I directed them. Uh, and, and this is after you had separated? Oh, it was, it was only about... I think seven years ago, right. uh, and he was already he was he was not well. He was mm. uh, I mean he really knew he was not very well then, Kenny. But he was brilliant, and we had such fun doing it together with Sharon Small. She was in it as well, and they were a lovely trio together. It packed out Oran Moore. They adored would, seeing course, Bill yeah. and Kenny together, yeah. uh, and Sharon. That was a great delight for them. And we did it together brilliantly. And the only time when I I nearly sort of, I was really quite cross with, with Kenny was when we were about to do the dress rehearsal on the Monday morning, which had been, as it always is, or a more fraught. Call it a dress. Put yes, that in big yes we call it a dress rehearsal, but we know what it's like. Yeah. Um, and we were just about to start. And he said, are you ready to me? And I said, yes, I am, Kenny. And he said, have you got a notebook handy? <gasps> I thought... I said, yeah, yes, I have. 
have actually. <laughs> I thought, how amazing, because he was still talking to me as if I was 23, you know. Yeah. Uh, but in, in the end, I thought it was actually a rather endearing thing. So I wasn't cross with him. Uh, and, and I was very glad that the three of us got together to do that play, because after that, he became really quite unwell. And then he died, sadly. So it was a very memorable thing to do. Yeah. And it was a sort of, it was like drawing a line under everything and coming together after all these years when all of us had done so many different things and he and I had done so many different things to do a play together. It was very special. So I was very happy with that. Yeah. And it also reminds us that you, you're always in a partnership with someone creative for all the time that I've known you. Yes. Well, you've always been. Well, I mean, yes. you've always been with yes. James since I've known you. But it, so all your life, really, you've always been inseparable from creative people. Where, yes. where is the line f- between work and life? Do you find it difficult I, to draw? I, I, not at all. Not at all. I, I only all my friends, every one of my friends, are, and I don't pick them that way. But I, I, everyone that I care about and love. Uh, and and I meet new people I care about and love every day. I've worked with, uh, as I say, Darren Brownlee. hadn't worked with him before. Mm. I now have such admiration for him. And that will keep happening all my life, I hope. You know, well, you meet it, new yeah. talent and new people. And, and you think, oh, yeah, now you're a friend and I love what you do. So, yes, um, but... But all my family are enormously creative. I mean, I started with my sister singing. She's a wonderful musician, much better than me. Uh, And I learned a lot from her. Um, You know, uh, James is a fantastic writer. He has a wonderful sense of humour. We talk about ideas all the time. Mm. I can't imagine being with somebody whom I couldn't do that with. Um, And my two daughters who are both absolutely brilliant. Uh, one works, Rosie works with, with NTS, brilliant, brilliant. And she's got such an eye for a story and a script. She is fabulous. And my Charlotte is a writer with her, her first book about to be published. So as a family, you can imagine, we just talk about ideas all the time. Yeah. It's what have you read? What have you seen? Who's playing who? You know. Yeah. Um, but that's wonderful um, to, to be the people that you love most and best and spend the best times with you can talk about ideas with you can share what you're all doing you know so so it's never been any other way for you that's no, life no i ca- life for me is about um sharing ideas and uh loving performance and creativity and writing i mean it's my whole life is about theater music writing ideas mm. uh performance performance is the thing i love performance I love sitting in a darkened room watching yeah. things. Well, I do it. I do it with my time off. I finally get time off, and the first thing I do is go go to the theatre. You know. Me too. I mean, the moment when I sit down, and the lights go down, is my favourite moment. My favourite moment, and it can happen, of course, at home. We we have a big this this room where we are now has a curved, a lovely playfair built for wonderful acoustic reasons his drawing rooms had curved walls Mm. and I'm facing towards the curved wall now because you can hear the difference in my voice Um, and why they were built curved walls was so that when the people performed and played and sung the the, you know the sound came back so it wasn't a square box Um, and uh, so our sitting room has this curved wall and the piano in the corner is pointing towards the curved wall Mm. so when you play the piano the music comes back to you Uh, so you know in all my life uh, there's always a bit of performance happening every day you know and the playhouse stage is right in the hall I I walk across it every morning so it's it's it never stops pure (laughs) theatre so when are you 
when are you most relaxed? Other than the, the lights going down, you know, when you're at home and what is your most relaxed state? Oh, yes. Well, that's why I was telling you about the curved wall of our sitting room, because we have a home cinema. We have a projector and we, we put out the lights and we project movies uh, onto our curved screen. And I love that. And I love watching, you know, it, it's wonderful to watch Brief Encounter on your own wall, yeah. um, at large, uh, in, in a darkened room. So that's what James and I, to relax, we watch films and mm-hmm. we watch them in the dark and we talk about them and we watch them again. Uh, so that's a relaxing thing for me. And the other thing I do to relax... Uh, is I paint, I uh, paint watercolours. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson said that, um, you know, a sign of a quiet mind was uh, p- painting watercolours. And I think I know what he meant. Uh, so I like painting uh, and I like I like looking at paintings. Mm-hmm. So that's another time. An art gallery is a very relaxing place for me mm-hmm. as well. So any any kind of moving image, I'm there. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> or any still it. image, yes. I, that's That's what I love. And as a child, did you always have that that fascination with performance? Oh, with you know, before you performed, absolutely. Before I started to sing in mm-hmm. in my teens, um, a lady called Phoebe McCartney came to our village of Markinch and put a little notice up saying that in the Masonic Hall on Saturday mornings there would be dance classes, uh, you know, and you pay two and sixpence a session. Mm-hmm. So my sister and I went along. And as well as learning Scottish country dancing, we learned tap dancing. And we were bought by my mother two pairs of red leather tap dancing shoes. Oh, I bet and you they thought you'd died and gone to heaven, I didn't you? I died and gone to heaven. <laughs> and I remember doing stamp, one, two, three, stamp, stamp, one, two, three, stamp. Mm. And it was fabulous. And so when I came to do tap dancing with Jean-Paul Sartre, I thought, at last, it's these back. early skills. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was terrible at it because I was quite a chubby child. And I'm sure <laughs> that I was really terrible at tap dancing, but I loved it. So, you know, and that, I think I was seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved that. Uh, and, and and again, once my sister and I would always sing, we'd sing in the car, we'd sing in our shared bedroom. And because we were sisters, um, we could harmonise. You know, often in a family, that's why it's so interesting that a lot of sisters and brothers can sing in close harmony. Something about their voices that yeah, really yeah. work. And and I think my sister and I, we, we used to work out harmonies and, and we loved singing in harmony. And I can still do it, you know, if... I can't resist singing in harmony. It you do it naturally, out. yeah. Yeah, because I, I can't. I really struggle with it. Now I know, so, but if so, if you sing me a tune, I I can you just put go straight a harmony, to harmony into yeah. it. Not a, it's not a very elaborate one. It's not one of the Ali McRae specials, you know. Those are toughies. Those are toughies. Yeah. I love it when Ali McRae says, no, I've just worked out his harmony now. And he sings it and everyone goes, oh my giddy aunt. You know? And then when you put the two together and you actually do it, you go, wow. <sighs> exactly. That's no, amazing. My harmonies are not in that league at all. <laughs> That's why I admire his so much. Mine are basically a third above or a third below. Sure. But it's fun to do that. It's beautiful, know? yeah. It's fun to do that. When we first worked together, or maybe not quite first, but you know, a few years back, mm-hmm. I remember you said to me, would you mind taking people through these couple of songs just to get the tune and things? Mm-hmm. And you handed me some sheet music. And I've often, not lied, but mm-hmm. concealed the truth about my ability to read music because it's, you know, it was easier to say, of course, yeah. yeah. So off I went mm-hmm. and tried to find recordings. Yeah. Couldn't find recordings that matched. Mm-hmm. So I sat and I worked out note for note and I wrote above the notes. I wish you'd told me I could have just sung it to you. I know, I know. 
So that's the end of the story. <laughs> it was in two, there were, there were two harmony lines, mm-hmm. um, or there was the melody and there mm-hmm. was another harmony, and I had written both down, mm-hmm. and I came in that morning and I was armed and I was ready and I was mm-hmm. so nervous. So in the basement of uh, St. Mark's. Oh, yeah, I remember you know, that. In Edinburgh. Yeah. And then we started, and you said, oh, no, it's kind of like that, and you started sort of singing it, and then everyone started just kind of gradually picking up, and I was playing a few chords, and, and I thought to myself, I have just wasted so much energy worrying about oh, this Brian. when you know we just kind of sat down and figured <laughs> it out together I know. when you said to me take people through it I thought right I better I'll get ready and I'll you know be really prepared and stuff and it's just funny how I didn't know your process back then and we hadn't worked together I, as exactly. much exactly and you telling me that now makes me feel terrible no, because no, no. I should have known about your process and I didn't interrogate it I have no uh, you know there's an awful lot of snobbishness about music yeah, and people yeah. who are classically trained who say, "Oh, you know, well, it's, it's a dotted minimum on the third bar," you know, and I think, "Oh, fuck off," because actually, <laughs> what it's about is how you sing the song, and certainly in our work in the theatre in performance, what you want is someone to sing you the song, mm. and you go, "Oh, I see how it goes," and you learn it line by line, and then you make it your own, and that's what. That's how we work, you know. I mean, okay, sometimes if you've got a group of musicians, you need to know what the dots are doing so that you're all playing the same thing. Or oh playing, yeah, you know. sure. But it, it's it. I think there is a snobbishness about about music that I don't have anything to do with. I think it's because of you know being a folk singer. Yeah. I, I, my, my my I I I learned to play the piano so I can read music. And that's quite helpful. But actually, my best training in music was listening to people sing a song and then learning it. Mm. That's, that's how I like to do it, you know. Well, when people who, don't, who aren't involved in music ask you about that, say, how do you do that but you don't read music? And to me, it's not that remarkable. I say, well, read it. music is a map. It's a road yeah, map of how to get to a place. A map. I use a different way of getting to the place. Yeah, yeah. But it's different paths up the same mountain. Like exactly. it's How do you get exactly. to the point? You get into the top, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, people people devised r- musical notation just so they could remember. I mean, mm. if when people first started making music, there had been recording facilities like we have now, Who that would never have been necessary mm. because they'd have just sung them into them. You know, said, that's how it goes, play it, you know. Yeah. But but uh, I I think the most exciting music occurs in theatre when people just learn the song together or the piece of music and then they start to create what they can bring to it. You know that's when it's thrilling. But that's the way theatre tends to work. Is is you start with the, you know, you use the script yes, as a kind yes. of a jumping off point, and then you start to find. Of course, it's the same. Yes, I mean bits. the script. After all, a, a bit like musical notation. Once you've learned it. You don't stand there all the time with it. You just you just play it. You go from there. You go for it. Yeah, and yeah. it becomes your own. You make the character your own. You make the piece of music your own. And I mean, in, in traditional singing, you know, every singer, ballad singer or singer of any song makes it their own. And, and you know, when we were working with Ashley on the Sophie Tucker uh, one of these days, um, she was anxious to begin with, as every actor would be. Oh, I've, I've not got it right. And I said to her, she, it was, she was a blues singer. You've just got to sing it the way you're going to sing it. Mm. And Stuart and, and uh, Kevin will follow, you know, they will follow, they were playing guitar and keys on it. They that's will how it follow you. Been. Yes, that, that's how it would have been. Yeah. And if you want to hold that note longer, or if you want to, you know, change the way that you come in, that will be fine, you know. And There's great freedom to that, but it's also scary. It's scary to do it, but once you know that you can do it, and once she, oh, it was amazing to watch Ashley's process because once she got that song and just sang it, it was hers yeah. and also beautifully free. And Stuart and Kevin around her, 
could you know uh, do it and then we got Darren added a bit of tap dancing into it as well it was it was one of my favorite moments I thought it was really beautiful the way it all came together because every single one of them brought something to it fabulously you know so it was exciting Marilyn Emery thank you very much thank you Brian Marilyn Emery one of the finest people I've ever had the privilege to know and to work with and someone who'll be sadly missed, but not soon forgotten. Um, she's affected many lives and done beautiful work and been a great friend to me over the years. Um, so I'm sad at the loss of her. And my heart goes out to her beautiful family, um, to James and to Charlotte and Rosie. And uh, I hope that they can all find some peace at this time. So that's it for me today. Just wanted to share some of those memories and uh, I hope that you had the pleasure of of knowing Marilyn in some small way as I did uh, because your life will be the richer for it. Cheerio now.